Cause someday I'm gonna be dead and gone But something in my skeleton bones has got to carry on So I'll carry on Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of The Behavior Breakdown. I'm your host, Lynette Elizabeth, and I'm happy that you're joining us in support of this podcast. I wanted to start this podcast to sit down and talk about all of the areas in the field of ABA that I often get asked about both professionally and personally. I found it was very difficult for families of those affected by autism, clinicians, and parents to access this information about disabilities and behavioral health services. The resources out there are immense, but I do have to say it is very difficult to navigate the different avenues that you could explore to better assist your loved one in finding resources to interact with them in a more positive way. It is my hope that through these conversations and presentations of information, that everyone out there who is interested in learning more about the behavioral health field will be able to better understand the process of what ABA is, where it came from, and how, as professionals, we hope it will be shaped in the future. This podcast is going to be operating on a value-for-value model, which means that you pay for the value you feel you have received. Please check out our Patreon page and feel free to comment, send us a message, and actively participate. Because this is a value-for-value model, we're not going to be playing any ads on this podcast. It is 100% member-supported. Our hope is that you will become an active patron, but we do understand that the state of our economy may present a barrier for some of our listeners. Keep in mind that you can also support us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family, and please, please, please pass our names on to friends and loved ones you feel could benefit from this information. We value all of the feedback that we get from our followers, and we hope that you will continue to support us. Now, it wasn't my intention to start with this topic as the first episode, but considering all of the news of these mass layoffs within our field, I felt it was necessary to sit down and really investigate the reasons why this is happening. For those who haven't heard, many ABA companies, such as LME, CARD, and 360 Behavior, have recently laid off many employees, including clinicians, administration, and behavioral techs. Most notably, and most discussed among clinicians and professionals in the field the past week, is that these companies are all backed and have partnered with private equity firms. This has been exponentially increasing in popularity over the last 10 years. Unfortunately, with that being said, the primary motivation of these private equity firms, or PE firms, is to make a profit for their shareholders and limited partners. This, in turn, means that the management that work within these privately invested companies are required to increase the valuation of the company and minimize overhead. Several statements issued by the CEOs of these companies have collectively stated that the combination of funders reducing their reimbursement rates, rapidly growing inflation, the demand for increased salaries, staffing shortages, and increased property expenses to facilitate their clinics and offices have substantially impacted certain markets. The profit margin required to maintain these areas that already experience massive overhead costs has made it unmanageable to be able to produce interest and fees for the investors while keeping companies profitable enough to meet the demands. Now, I'm not here to defend the companies for how they manage these layoffs. In fact, I find it utterly unethical. But my focus really shifted from anger to apprehension of what this may mean for the future of our field. While all of the discussions online about PE firms being the root cause of these unfortunate events, I started to dive into the business side of ABA to see how these investors are truly affecting our operations and what that may predict for our future. My understanding at the beginning of this investigation was that once these companies are no longer profitable, the PE firms liquidate or sell off parts of the company to maintain profits and dividends. 
But what I wanted to find out in this process was how these companies became involved with PE firms and got to the point that there was a need for these broad reduction in assets. My hope was if we were more aware that we could work together as an industry to rectify or recognize when this may happen again. What I didn't expect was how complicated private equity funds can be and how differently companies can be affected. But I will say, at least in my understanding, profits are the bottom line. So I started investigating different sources that discussed what PE firms do and how they make their profits to dig a little deeper into what's going on behind the scenes of their companies. One of the first articles I found was written by Felix Barber and Michael Gould talking about the strategic secret of private equity. You can find this article and all of my resources in the show notes, and if you're a Patreon member, you can find these embedded within the transcribed audio on Patreon. In this article, they say, quote, Buying to sell can't be an all-purpose strategy for public companies to adopt. It doesn't make sense when an acquired business will benefit from important synergies with the buyer's existing portfolio of businesses. However, as private equity firms have shown, the strategy is ideally suited to realize a one-time, short-to-medium-term value creation opportunity. They go on to say, such an opportunity most often arises when a business hasn't been aggressively managed and so is underperforming. It can also be found with businesses that are undervalued because their potential isn't readily apparent. In those cases, once the changes necessary to achieve the uplift and value have been made, usually over a period of two to six years, it makes sense for the owner to sell the business and move on to other opportunities. If you're anything like me, this did not make any sense and left me with so many more questions and answers. I'm a behavior analyst and I've never had any training in business. And I think that this has contributed to our naivety amongst clinicians since most of us have started with companies from their grassroots phase and they were all BCBA owned. We got into this industry for the purpose of helping individuals with autism and not in it for the profitability of ABA. So I thought I would back it up a little and start out with finding out what a PE firm actually does. Let me tell you, I had to do quite a bit of research in order to present the basics of a PE firm strategy and its purpose in acquiring ABA companies and do that in the most easily digestible format, which was tricky since I know many of us do not have extensive business backgrounds. So let's get into it. As companies go through their growth process or life cycle, it can be broken down into their early, mid to late, and mature phases. Different forms of private equity can enter the investment market within any of these phases, but there are three main forms of private equity funds that enter during each of those phases. When people are speaking about private equity, they tend to use it as an umbrella term for venture capital firms, growth equity, and leveraged buyouts, known as LBOs, but private equity is actually synonymous with just LBOs. The first type of investment is venture capital, which typically enters during the early stage of a business and only enters as a partial owner. Venture capital funds target early phase startups and continually provide capital to a newer company for the purpose of creating organic growth over time. My immediate thought when reading all of this was to equate this type of investment to the show Shark Tank. Growth equity tends to enter during the mid or growth phase of a company and can be anywhere from a partial owner to a majority owner. However, most often holds a minority share based on the information that I've researched. The purpose of growth equity firms at this level is to enter the company, facilitate its growth, and streamline its operations for the purpose of selling their ownership stake or listing it publicly on the stock market for an initial public offering, which is known as an IPO. Some investment firms use leverage buyouts. By the time an LBO firm enters the market for purchasing a company, it's likely in its late or mature phase, or could also be declining. And the LBO firm is going to become a full owner with the purpose of selling it off quickly. 
Where venture capital consists of investments in new products and services, where the objective is to achieve outsized returns from investing in the next must-have technology, breakthrough drug, or massive consumer trend, growth equity targets the next phase of a company's life cycle when the risk shifts from whether or not the product will gain market adoption to whether it can be sold profitably in the future. These companies might not be cash flow positive at the point of investment, but they are expected to be so at some point in the future. Growth equity uses both venture capital and LBO strategies to create a newer form of investment style that limits the firm's risk of losing money, but also creates ample opportunity for financial profit in the short-term future. Many of our ABA companies are in the mid-phase of their life cycle, and for this reason, we're just going to focus on growth equity investment strategies. Now that I've defined how and when a private equity firm would invest in a company, I needed to investigate what the process of investment entailed and why they would invest in ABA. What I found is that quite simply, private equity investing can be broken down into three basic phases, the fundraising period, the investment period, and the harvest period. Turns out each period's purpose is exactly how it sounds. The fundraising period is designed to locate and secure investors, The investment period is when the PE firm will locate a collection of businesses to invest in. This is typically known as the fund's portfolio, which can be generalist in nature and span across a variety of industries, or it can be explicitly just one industry. And the harvest phase, in my opinion, is a dismal but adequate term for the firm exiting the investment. Amongst all of the information that I was able to gather, the consensus is that most growth equity strategies rely on remaining invested with a company for four to six years while growing the company's value before entering the harvest phase. During the harvest phase, there are a few different options that PE firms might utilize to exit the company. The most common of those strategies is a strategic acquisition in the form of a secondary sale to another investment company or an initial public offering. The profits of these sales are then distributed amongst the investors. Now, how does this relate to the field of ABA and behavioral health care? Well, in 2012, the BRAF group tracked only two deals in the autism and intellectual disabilities segment. By 2018, this had increased to a volume of 37, and in both 2020 and 2021, 39 autism service deals had been recorded within each year. According to a prospectus called An Update on Investment and Consolidation in Autism Services, written by an investment firm called Provident Health Partners, the first emergence of a platform creation was tracked in 2010. By 2017, there were 10 platforms created, and by 2020, it had increased to 30. Today, it now stands at over 40 different companies that have partnered with private equity firms. If we go back to the information that we discussed earlier in this episode, It's easy to predict that within the time frame of four to six years, there would be some movement in secondary sales or public offerings once the private equity fund has reached its maturity, and now it's entering the harvest phase. With that information in mind, this article notes that the first secondary buyout was observed in 2016, which lands squarely within the holding time frame we discussed earlier. If we generalize that tactic out to our industry in the last five to six years, we see a steady increase in private equity investments in ABA companies. Therefore, the logical assumption is that many of those companies are now or will be soon entering the harvest phase. For example, Card was acquired in 2018, and the investment fund is likely approaching its maturity, meaning the firm is going to be looking to sell its stakes in the company or go public on the stock market to produce as much return as possible to give dividends to its investors. While I know many companies are citing inflation, a demand for rising salaries, and declining funder reimbursements as the reasons they are quote-unquote restructuring their assets, for example, layoffs and branch closures, 
The more likely reasons are attributed to increasing the valuation of the company and its profitability. This is also known as cleaning up their balance sheets, which can occur prior to the termination of the holding or divestment period. It behooves the investment firm to quote-unquote clean up their balance sheet and to create a higher valuation and project as much revenue as possible prior to approaching a secondary sale to another investor or taking the company public. While COVID-19, inflation, and economic instability did present a barrier for many of these acquisitions in the form of reduced profits, according to the article written by Provident, while the valuation landscape within the autism service space continues to be quite rich relative to most other sectors in the healthcare services, multiples have plateaued and even softened relative to pre-pandemic levels. Valuations are ultimately a function of growth and risk. The more attractive the growth profile of the business, the higher the multiple on earnings that one can expect to garner on a sale. As such, COVID-19 dampened many growth assumptions due to outbreaks, cancellation, and pronounced RBT churn, which has had a significant impact on transaction values and revenue levels. Still, valuations remain at elevated levels for large providers that possess key value drivers, as several platforms seek to expand their footprint in a still highly fragmented market, all signs point to the sector moving into the next phase of its investment cycle characterized by an increased secondary transaction deal activity. Trends across the industry itself, such as the projected increase in autism prevalence and the need for qualified personnel, will only work to strengthen merger and acquisition activity even further. Provident expects valuations to remain stable going forward, supported by consolidator interest as well as strategic buyers looking to build an integrative care system, end quote. So what's going on inside these PE-backed ABA companies and what are they experiencing at this point in their divestment or holding period? During the growth phase, investment companies are going to immerse themselves into the company in a variety of different ways depending on the contract terms. With growth equity, this is likely in the form of a minority stake where they provide capital and consultation services for business expansion. But for others, it may be a majority stake with the purpose of selling the company at the end of the terms. This is variable across different companies, and it just depends on what terms were set by the company and the investment firm. Many of these transactions are behind closed doors, and the information is not readily available, but I am continuing to research trends, which is a rabbit hole I will save for another day. But throughout all the research I have done so far, it appears that most of these transactions are growth in nature and therefore have a purpose of growing to sell their stakes in a secondary sale as opposed to selling the entire company. Now, behavioral healthcare has seen an increased number of acquisitions of larger companies absorbing smaller companies, known as add-ons, and this can increase the valuation of the company while simultaneously reducing competition. Aside from add-on acquisitions, there are a few different ways that the article from Provident notes that are strategic measures to increase profits during the growth period. Some changes that might be seen within a PE-backed company is augmenting existing infrastructure and back-office operations to support additional growth vectors. This would likely result in improved and efficient clinical and administration support. So think scheduling, onboarding, credentialing, and administration staff being streamlined to help with non-bill work. Another area they will focus on is adhering to higher standards of quality due to increased liability and scrutiny. This would result in outcome benchmarking and tracking to improve compliance measures. This article expands on that practice by stating, quote, as awareness continues to magnify and capital partners pay closer attention to billing practices, building density and scale will be critical to having a seat at the table with payers and funding sources. One of the most important elements in the treatment of autism and positioning businesses well with payers is the ability to benchmark and ultimately track outcomes. 
Private equity-backed organizations have placed a significant amount of emphasis on tracking outcomes to ultimately gain leverage with payers, end quote. This statement gives the impression that the outcome measures that many of these companies are tracking are designed to increase payer rates as opposed to focusing solely on the outcome measures of the client specifically. In my opinion, this could be highly dependent on the company and its ability to maintain its values by placing the client first and actually utilizing the outcome data to support the growth of their client. If it simultaneously increased valuation and profit, that seems like every owner's Goldilocks zone that they want to strive for. I do suspect this is widely variable among different providers depending on how they run their company. But the third way that an investment company will tackle increasing profits and reducing their labor costs is to grow in density and reach. This means if a company can grow in size and number while being cost-effective, they could be negotiating leverage with funding sources and payers for better rates while increasing their profit margin. Lastly, they realize their synergistic value through the addition of contiguous service lines, which places an emphasis on integrated care models and capturing the full continuum of care. This may look something like an ABA facility that also provides occupational therapy, speech therapy, and mental health care provided across clinics, homes, and communities. Now, while I feel like these targets are not wholly unsupported by clinicians, there does become a conflict between the investment company and the clinicians when these efforts are not translated into actual profit. By the end of the growth period, if these investment funds do not produce adequate growth and valuation, we may see a liquidation of assets or layoffs to increase the total valuation of the company at the end of the fund terms. This article additionally states that, quote, Companies that can demonstrate their value through growth prospects, strong infrastructure, robust expansion into ancillary service lines, and well-trained personnel will be high in demand in the future from both a client and deal standpoint. Provident therefore expects the market to be favorable to sellers, offering the choice to consider the full scale of options regarding a potential partnership, end quote. The first acquisition an owner typically engages in is known as a platform creation, Once the terms of the initial platform investment ends, the fund may enter into a secondary buyout followed by a tertiary buyout. So what the field of ABA has been seeing is that once these platform creations are completed or the fund terms are ending, they are selling to additional investment firms as secondary acquisitions, which purchase the existing company's shares while remaining a private company. In 2016, the first secondary buyout was observed by LLR Partners Acquisition of Learned Behavioral from Milestone Partners. Throughout 2017 through 2019, you start seeing larger sponsors starting to invest in the sector. While COVID-19 did slow down the sponsor's investment, we do start seeing a larger number of strategic acquirers entering the sector. As the market continues to mature, Provident expects to see a consolidation of consolidators theme take shape with larger private equity-backed platforms acquiring groups backed by smaller funds to achieve greater scale and efficiencies. With more than half of the existing platforms at least three years into their investment, we expect to see an uptick in secondary transactions as larger sponsors seek to enter the space via acquisition. So it's no surprise that we're seeing many acquisition of smaller companies into larger companies that are backed by some of the biggest investment firms in the country, such as Blackstone and General Atlantic. Based on the acquisition timelines of many of our companies, it would be safe to assume that these acquisitions are going to continue moving forward into secondary and tertiary buyouts for the next several years. So what was the motivation for all these private equity firms suddenly taking an interest in the behavioral health sector? Well, changes to U.S. and federal state laws now compel insurance companies to reimburse autism treatments. In addition, the scarcity of major treatment centers for autism has also enticed investors. 
According to an article written by Hannah Fafaro, before the change requiring insurance reimbursements, investors showed no interest in autism. Once these state and federal laws changed, companies launched through clinicians' grassroots efforts rapidly became profitable, increasing and even exceeding past $20 million of revenue, suddenly making them a candidate for investment. She goes on to cite Michael Maloney, who is the president and CEO of Learn Behavioral, who states that ABA companies are coy about how much money they make, but those that offer autism therapy overall generate somewhere between $15 and $80 billion a year based on the estimates on figures from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which estimates that intensive behavioral therapies for autism cost upwards of $60,000 per child each year. It's easy to see how revenue-driven firms would be interested in the sector of healthcare. The concern then becomes how affected the company's overall service quality may be impacted. Provident goes on to say, quote, As consolidation continues to play a meaningful role in autism services, there are differing opinions on the going-forward impacts of private equity investment. The potential degradation of quality and distinct focus on profit concerns yields many experts who are hesitant to partner with private equity-affiliated platforms. Conversely, many advocates endorse the professionalism and resources that institutional investment brings to the space. Many opinions across all of these articles do vary regarding their position on private equity-backed companies. While the benefits of capital do promote the expansion of services into geographic areas that smaller companies have not been able to serve, if we sit down and consider how private equity has performed in other sectors, I think it's easy to see that it rarely reduces costs and it rarely increases quality, despite increasing the reach. I think our industry has a long way to go in deciding where the ethics lie between the mission of private equity and our industry values. Furthermore, knowing when the line needs to be drawn between profits and serving our families. Overall, it appears that private equity has entered the behavioral healthcare field permanently, and I think it's safe to assume that we will continue to see its expansion in the form of additional acquisitions by larger and larger investment firms in the coming years. As a BCBA, my only hope is that the values of companies they acquire put their foot down on some of the more controversial target areas, such as client outcomes and ethical practices. However, I can predict that PE fund profits and dividends will ultimately trump clinical input if it becomes pitted against revenue. If I've learned one thing through all of this research, it's readily apparent that PE funds will do what they need in order to get a return on their investment, even at the expense of staff and families. I hope this information at least summarized the basics of a role of a PE firm within an ABA company. And while I do realize the details are much more nuanced than this, my sole purpose of the episode was to provide a brief, easy-to-understand breakdown for all of our listeners. I hope the discussion continues and that there is a way for private equity to coexist ethically within our industry. I hope all of our listeners are at least a bit more educated about the business dealings happening within their company. Please continue listening to the Behavior Breakdown for additional episodes related to this, including interviews and roundtable discussions. Also head to Patreon to keep yourself updated with upcoming episodes, bonus content, interviews, and more. Stand. And I want to be there It's going to be grand And I want to be there I don't want to grow up Cause someday I'm going to be dead and gone But something in my skeleton bones Has got to carry on So I guess I'll carry on